Dr. Ashley Maytek, a member of the faculty at the University of Illinois College of Veterinary Medicine. Over the next several weeks, we're presenting a mini-series called The Veterinary Detective. In each episode, we discuss a case with a veterinary clinician who walks us through the diagnostic process to help us understand how they apply clinical reasoning in their practice. But how does that process work in their emergency room? How does the frequent need for speed affect diagnostic strategies in trauma cases? We'll explore the unique challenges faced by emergency room veterinarians in this episode we call the case of the waterlogged dog. Joining me is Dr. Jenica Horaschek. Dr. Horaschek is a board certified emergency medicine and critical care specialist here at the University of Illinois Veterinary Teaching Hospital. Let's hear about the case. So I was actually um, on call, the faculty um, on call doctor that weekend. So it was a Saturday afternoon and it was a very busy day in the ER. Um, and so the intern and resident that were receiving cases that day called me for some backup. So I came in um, to help kind of take care of some other cases. And then in that same time period, uh, Miss Dory presented to our ER. And what did she look like when she came in? What, what information did you guys have at that point? Yeah, so thankfully the the guy that found her in the water um, had called ahead and so kind of gave us a heads up that he found this, you know, what appeared to be a younger dog um, in one of the lakes. Um, that she was extremely cold and was not very responsive. And so he had wrapped her up in a blanket and then drove as fast as he could to, to us. Um, and so when she came in, that's kind of all the information that we knew about her. Um, and we kind of had to put the pieces together from there. And so one of our um, ER technicians went up and got her from the Good Samaritan, um, who's now her owner, but um, got her and then brought her back into the ER. And that's where we started our assessment on her. When an animal is admitted to the ER and you suspect abuse, what do you do? For her, I mean, she was put in a wire crate and put in a lake. We knew that somebody had, you know, intentionally tried to drown her. Sunday morning, you know, I called animal control and reported to them and then they get the authorities involved and everybody else. And so I had lots of phone calls with the police and the um, animal control and the shelters and everybody else to try to kind of get all of the information we needed for her. Um, and so most of those cases that kind of come in as a, you, you know, it's your gut feeling that something is wrong and something wasn't done right. Um, or, you know, we have animals that come in for repeated injuries that um, are frequently happening that the story doesn't quite add up. And so those are the cases where we do reach out to animal control and we'll call them and report it to them. They are usually the ones who then contact the police department if there's needed to be like a further investigation. Um, but I think it's one of those things where, you know, sometimes we're wrong and sometimes it is an accident and it wasn't actually an abuse, but Usually you can trust your gut um, and it's better to, to reach out. Nobody ever gets mad for us calling saying, hey, I'm worried about this situation. Um, the other big thing that we do is take a lot of pictures. So if you document it and have you know, evidence to say this is what I saw and then having a very thorough record that you know, shows exactly what describes what you saw, what you, you found, the problems that were there. Um, and you don't necessarily have to say in the record that it's abuse, but the description of the injuries and the wounds are, are going to be helpful for everyone. It can be a little bit tricky, but the biggest thing is to not really confront the, the person that is bringing it to you. 
um, especially if you think that's the person that's abusing the animal, um, to kind of leave that to the authorities and then just kind of take care of the animal, treat you know them and do what you need to for them, and then you know get the authorities involved. And how, as an ER doctor, how common is it that you are handed a dog or cat or chicken or whatever it is and say, you know, the owner says or whoever finds them says something is wrong, but I don't know. I, I don't have any history. Help. How often does it happen in your world? It's very common. It's actually more common to have that information um, and, or to not have any information really than to have the full story. Um, we're kind of lucky here in that most of our cases are also referred. And so if we do have a, a case that's referred over by a primary vet somewhere else, they typically will call us and kind of give us a heads up on them. So sometimes we do get that little bit of information ahead of time, but sometimes they don't. And so um, even if they're sent over by a vet, you know, there's a lag between faxing and emailing records and all that stuff. And so sometimes they just show up and we just don't know what's going on, but um, it's pretty common. <laughs> I think it's an interesting point because if you look at a textbook or when young veterinarians, veterinary students are learning to work up a case, they're often taught you uh, take a history from the owner. That's very critical. Uh, you do your physical exam. You might look at their past health records and uh, what medications they're on or things like that. And then from that, you start to think about what could be wrong with this patient uh, and, it, and it could be this long process, but when Dory came into you, she was very ill and I'm guessing you didn't have a minute, let alone an hour to go through that. So can you talk about how do you, how did you problem solve? How do you prioritize in that situation? Yeah. So what I, what I tell everybody um, that comes through clinics, um, whether it's students or interns or residents is that we teach you all of these things in vet school and all of the textbooks and knowledge and everything, but there's a difference between memorizing the chart in the book versus having this working clinical knowledge. And so um, what I really push for and, and the way I approach every case is that this is my working knowledge base. So this is what I need to know on the clinic floor for the things that come in the door. And I can go back and I can look up charts and things and drugs and all the other things that are, you know, more non-emergent or not life-threatening problems. And so if I can't remember all 17 differentials for hypoglycemia, then I can go back and remember and brush up on numbers 15 and 16, 17, but I know at least the first five. And so I kind of work through it from a practical standpoint and what's most common and then what's life and death in front of me. And so what do I need to know to, to save an animal versus, you know, not be able to save them. So it is definitely a different approach from, you know, internal medicine where you do have that time and you have records and records and records and years of paperwork to look through the night before and you are able to prepare for that case before it even comes in. And when you saw Dory, what was her primary problem or what were her biggest problems that you were, you were most worried about at that point? Yep. So on our initial triage exam, so for any animal that comes into the ER, we kind of look at their a triage exam and, and that's more focused on what are the life-threatening organ systems that could be affected. And so we look at their cardiovascular system, their neurologic system. Um, we look at the respiratory system. We have a history of toxins or a history of seizures or something else. And so we really kind of prioritize some of their vital parameters and physical exam findings that will tell us, is this animal in shock? Is this animal stable or is it not? 
And so her initial triage exam, she was really not responsive. So she kind of would look around, but she was laterally recumbent. She wouldn't really even pick up her head off the table. Um, and she was extremely cold. So we could not get a readable temperature on her, um, no matter what thermometer we used or even the, the probes that we use on the um, monitoring machines that we have. So we just couldn't get a, a temperature on her. So knowing that most thermometers, you know, measure down to 90 degrees, we assumed that she was less than that. Um, and so that was the biggest problem that was kind of in front of us and that we knew right away. And then um, everything else kind of comes with kind of as we treated that problem, we kind of figured out what else was going on, but we knew that was number one and the first thing that we needed to deal with. So she was hypothermic, she had really cold body temperature. And I feel like most of the time when we have a patient coming in with the disease, then our next step is um, that that was the presenting complaint. She's really cold and she's non-responsive. And you would start to think, well, what made her cold, right? We want to understand this root cause, but I'm guessing you guys didn't stop and think, let me think of all the ways that she could be cold and all the things that can make her look semi-conscious or not right mentally. You probably skipped all that and went right to treating her. So can you talk a little bit about that and uh, what was your treatment? And, and then do you go back after you know she's stable, then you go back and try and figure out what's going on or where do you take the case from there? Yep. So, you know, the, the guy that brought her in, um, thankfully had did, did tell us ahead of time that he found her in this lake um, and we knew it was a very cold day. And so we kind of knew the problem um, before she came in. But if this was the case that I didn't know the problem, then I would still approach it in the same way. And so identifying that hypothermia is the, the biggest problem right then, and that maybe her consciousness or um, lateral recumbency and things like that could be secondary. So in severe hypothermia, it can really affect your heart and your CNS. And so it can cause you to become not responsive and cause you to not be able to get up and walk around and be really lethargic and lateral on the table. And so kind of knowing that that could be related, the primary thing that we wanted to treat was the hypothermia. We kind of knew that that was the biggest thing. There were other things that were apparent on her physical exam. So we did see that she had some wounds um, on her back and along her sides and her back legs um, and that her paw pads were um, kind of sloughing off and things like that. And so those were there, we could visually see them, but that wasn't the life-threatening problem. So we kind of ignore that for the initial time period. And then once we stabilize her um, to a point where we are comfortable with where her vitals are, her temperature is normal, then we go back and kind of do our secondary survey and look at all the other things that could be going on. And what did you do to warm her up? Yep. So um, there's actually multiple ways to warm up patients. And so because she was so cold and she was also wet, so she was, had just been in a lake. Um, and so being wet and cold makes it um, kind of a double whammy. And so we basically threw all of the mechanisms at her that we could. So we placed an IV catheter and then we gave her warm fluids. Um, so that's going to help kind of warm her up systemically right off the bat. And then we also put a water blanket on the table. So she wasn't laying on that cold metal table. And then a bear hugger on top of her with other blankets. And then we used a hairdryer actually and just dried her off that way. So it took um, a couple of hours for us to get to a readable temperature. And then I think probably a total of five hours for us to get her up to normal temperature. Um, so we had thankfully a very dedicated students that stood there with her and kind of 
traded off for those hours as we just continued to warm her and eventually got there. So was there a celebration with each degree in, in of the thermometer? She's 95, she's 96, 97. Yep. Yeah. And so the big thing with warming them is that, you know, we don't want to, same thing with cooling animals that are you know having a heat stroke because we don't want to do it too abruptly. And so really getting them up a degree each hour would be an ideal kind of progression when we can't read the temperature, we don't know how fast or slow it's going. But once we finally got a readable temperature, then yep, she basically followed the textbook and she warmed up a degree every hour. And as she warmed up, her mentation improved. And so by the time that she had a temp of 96, which is still not even normal, she was like, thank you guys and sat up on the table and was looking around and happy as can be and giving kisses and feeling like a dog again. So do you ever worry about them getting too, too warm as you, you get these really cold guys that come in uh, about them getting overwarmed? Yep. Yeah. So the same thing with warming or cooling them. So we try to aim for kind of the low end of the, the normal end of the range. So if we're trying to warm them. Then once we get to 99, we kind of stop the active warming process and just sort of let them continue to lay on a, a warm towel or warm, you know, water blanket or anything, but kind of take away that the bear hugger and the extra warming mechanisms. Same thing with cooling. So once they get down to 103, then we sort of stop the active cooling process and just let them kind of continue to cool themselves um, normally. And what's a normal body temperature for a dog? Uh, so typically 99, some say 98.5 um, to 102.5. So some will say 103. So it kind of depends on who you ask. But in my mind, it's, you know, 99 to 103 is the range. And so what ended up happening with Dory? So we warmed her up um, the first night and then um, started her on some oral antibiotics just based on the wounds and kind of how they appeared. And then the following morning, kind of let her, you know, get herself situated overnight. She actually ate dinner. She felt great. She took her meds. Um, was happy as can be. And then the next morning we sedated her um, and then basically did some wound care and kind of investigated all of the wounds that were going on and had actually one of the surgery faculty, Dr. Phillips, come and kind of take a peek too, just because they were pretty severe, pretty extensive. And so we're trying to figure out how to approach all those wounds that were kind of covering most of the back end of her, her body, back half of them. So... Um, kind of did that. And then um, at that point, it was Sunday. And so we Monday morning is when um, she would go back over to animal control and, and then go to the shelter and sort of do the normal stray process. She's a happy, healthy, wonderful dog now living her life. When I brought her to the, the University of Illinois Veterinarian Medicine and I handed her over to the veterinarian and I, I filled out the paperwork right there and I said, I really want this dog. Um, right. So, so you're going to get that dog, aren't you? We're going to get that dog. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and what did you name this doggy? We named her Dory. <laughs> uh, I think she ended up going on the Ellen show. Is there, or she wasn't there, but her owner was on the Ellen show. Yes. Yep. So her, her dad, her rescuer, um, and now fiance. So they went on the show to talk about her. Um, and that's when he proposed to her. And then, um, I think they've been on a number of TV shows and interviews and all that. 
Dory. I'm Facebook friends with her. And so we, we Facebook message every once in a while too. And she is living her dream, living her, her wonderful life. So she is a very good, happy ending um, and a happy story that I will, I'll never forget her. So <laughs> she sounds like she hit the jackpot of being able to come to have you as a doctor uh, and, and come to the University of Illinois, Illinois Veterinary Teaching Hospital. And then got the trifecta with the, the owner, um, and also he being able to propose and, and, uh, get a wife out of this, I guess. Um, I'm going to ask you one, one last question, which is, um, as your early days and as a veterinarian, when you had just graduated from veterinary school, what did you tend to get wrong? Yeah. So I struggled, um, with, like hearing heart murmurs. I think that was the one big thing that I, it took me two or three years to be like, no, I actually can now hear this. I now like actually know what I'm listening to and hearing this. So heart murmurs was a big thing that I struggle with. And the way I tried to figure it out was I basically just listened to every animal and just would listen for as long as I needed to. And if it wasn't my case, but somebody else said this dog has a heart murmur or a cat has a heart murmur or something. I'd be like, I need to listen to it because I need to hear it because I'm imagining this thing, but I've never really felt confident in being able to actually hear it myself. And so that was something that took a little bit of time and practice um, and lots of listening of lots of patients for me to actually feel comfortable doing it. I think that's great advice. Being able to hear heart murmurs was something that I struggled with. And I think many new veterinarians struggle with that too. So that's the case. Our thanks to Dr. Jenica Horaschek for sharing Dory's story with us. One thing we're learning in this series is that the diagnostic process isn't set in stone. As we've seen, there are times when clinicians need to conduct tests or even treat patients working with limited information. Instead, those situations require that they rely on their experience and ability to read a situation. And thanks to all of you for joining us. Please subscribe and tell your friends about the show. It's available on iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice. One last thing. In addition to this podcast, we offer a wide range of learning opportunities for veterinary students and veterinarians. You can learn more about those by visiting online.vetmed.illinois.edu. I'm Dr. Ashley Mitek, your veterinary detective.